Hey, so there's this television series called Extreme Home Makeover. Anyone ever watch it with your tissues in hand, probably? And it's this uh, crew of people that go across the nation. They choose these dilapidated homes from across the country, and they revitalize them in a really short amount of time. And they use community resources and, and, and different people in the community to make this, like, huge drastic change, and then they reveal that change to the family by shouting three words. If you know it, say it with me. They say, move that bus, right? And so they came to Erie just uh, not that long ago, and I want you to watch really quickly some of the highlights of what happened when they came to Erie. Clara is an incredible caretaker who has really helped out thousands of kids in the community, and she's done it all out of her home. Through the work that my mom has done, these kids have a second chance to make it. She would help anybody. If we even say anything about a person that's having a hard time, she said, what do you have? What they need? That's my mom. Clara Ward is teaching us how to stay off the streets. The things that they do for us kids make, the, make us feel like we're loved. If we didn't have Clara, it would be miserable. I don't help them, nobody cares. When we first got involved in the project, we believed right from the beginning that we wanted to do something that was more than just take care of Clara and her family. We wanted to help children in the neighborhood. So we've been um, walking through the book of Nehemiah over these past several weeks. And in this book of the Bible, they're not redoing a house, but they are rebuilding a wall. And this wall previously had guarded Jerusalem, but it was broken. It was, its gates had been burned with fire. Its purpose was no longer standing. It wasn't keeping anyone in, and it wasn't keeping anyone out. And much like the houses in Extreme Home Makeover, this wall needed a lot of work. When I was first married, um, Joel and I were looking for a house, and we were 23, we were newlyweds, and so we were looking for a house to purchase. And my idea of what a house um, should look like and his were a little bit different. I thought maybe a house would have like plumbing built in, you know, <laughs> like you already had the indoor plumbing. Um, but on my list, on my dream list at that point was like an attached garage, because we live in Erie, uh, maybe a dishwasher, you know, if I was lucky. His require requirements were um, remarkably less. Um, I remember him saying to me, I found the perfect, just the perfect place. I have to show you. It's exactly what we're looking for. I just can't wait to show you. And he took me to look at it, and here it was. <laughs> uh, there wasn't even walls in the house. Not, there wasn't, there wasn't uh, this was the kitchen, I think. I, I wasn't even sure. There was this rickety old, old board. The entire front was falling off. The steps were cracked. Uh, the kitchen was gutted and stripped down to the studs. There was this rusty old toilet that smelled stank, okay? And I was like, oh, it's, yeah, it's lovely. And um, with a gleam in his eye, he said, but the foundation is even. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, 
<laughs> awesome. And he says, isn't this a dream? And I said, yeah, more like a nightmare, you know? <laughs> like, are you kidding? This is what we're going to do. So naturally, we bought it <laughs> because that's what, that's what you do when you're a Schreiber. And, um, and we started this, this extreme home makeover Schreiber style. And now it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Uh, he, he did wonderful in his family, and it's beautiful to live in. But at that time, I was like, what are we thinking? And Nehemiah, in the scripture, he pleads to the king. He says, listen. Let me go back. Let me rebuild the wall. Send me to the city. I want to go. I know it's broken. I know it's dilapidated. I know that it needs a lot of work, but I want to go. And he gets there. The king sends him, and he casts a vision, and he builds a team. And in a short period of time, he's rebuilding the wall. And as much, I think, as that video of the Extreme Home Makeover, as much as the features of that house were were cool and, and like amazing to see the after and the before and, and so neat to see the colors and the landscaping and everything that they put together in it. The real story in that clip was of the woman, Clara, who ran an inner city youth development program. The real story, the part that, that, that feels uh, the most significant is the kids who live there, the kids who didn't have a place to live and now do, the kids who didn't have a place to eat but now eat. And the transformation of that house was only powerful because of the story of the people who lived in it. That's the reason why that transformation was powerful. So in the book of Nehemiah, I want to, to propose to you today that the wall is just a character of the story. It, it's not the most important part of the story. In fact, if it was, then the book would be over, but we're only in chapter seven of that book. And so there's several chapters that are going on. If the wall was the only part of the story, then once it was built, the book would have been over. But Nehemiah was describing how he built the wall up until chapter six, and that was the end. And so today we're gonna look at chapter seven and eight to see the wrap up of the story. And this is where I believe God reveals to us that the wall is a picture of his faithfulness, that the wall is rebuilt, but now is the time to rebuild the people. That the wall was rebuilt, but now is the time to rebuild the people. God says, now is the time to reestablish the identity of my people. Now is the time to rebuild God's community. Now is the time to rebuild the church. Now is the time to rebuild the city. Now is the time to rebuild the kingdom of God. And this work is much harder than building a wall. This is the harder work of giving our hearts over to God. And I wasn't supposed to preach this morning. Some schedules got changed, and so I, and so I got the chance to. And it, it was so clear to me as I began to study this passage, so abundantly clear that I believe so deeply inside of me that, that this is the very word of God to Erie First Assembly this morning. To, to our church, to us who sit here this morning, 8150 Oliver Road, that God has picked our house that, that parts of our house are broken and busted up. That, that parts of our house need a makeover. That parts of our lives are tangled up and worn out. That parts of us who we are as believers aren't sharp anymore and, and, they're, and they're dull and they're stripped. But God has picked our house. And now is the time that he wants to rebuild his people. You know, God is always about building his people. God is always about building his church. He, he was in the Old Testament with Nehemiah. He, he comes to that, that place and he says, we did the wall, now we got to do the people. And, and he said it in the New Testament too, when Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome. God is the builder of people forever. What does God want to build into you? What, what does God want to build into your family 
to make it stronger? What does God want to build into us as a community of faith? What does God want to build into us? Because now's the time for it. We've built the wall. We've taken time to do those things. But he says, now is the time to build the people. And I believe that the wall taught the people something. It was, it was foretelling. God wastes nothing. We were having a conversation this morning at prayer. God wastes nothing at all. And so it was foretelling of what building the people was going to be like. The whole wall was like one giant sermon illustration, right? That's like a dream for a pastor. Here's the wall. Let's talk about the wall. You know, every single time. Because he just did so much during the building of the wall that God was showing what was going to happen when he rebuild the people. So that's where I'm going to focus on this morning a little bit. We learned a couple things from the building process, all right? We learned a couple things. The first thing is this. Forward progress will always attract opposition, Forward progress will always attract opposition. So at first, um, God seems to prosper Nehemiah. He, he rises through the ranks of Artaxerxes' court. He, he, he is in this prestigious and, and wholly trusted position of the king's cupbearer, which provides him proximity to the king. It provides him credibility to the king. It provides him this opportunity to, to share his heart with him and say, I'm just so sad over this Jerusalem. I want to do something about it. And so soon, Nehemiah is off to Jerusalem with this royal leave of absence, a building permit, and a military escort, okay? Which doesn't happen that easily. And so Nehemiah has this favor of God, and he's going to the city to do it. And when he arrives, he quickly mobilizes volunteers, which is not always easy to do. He rebuilds sections of the city's crumbled wall. Things are going really, really well. But this forward progress attracted opposition. And Sanballat and Tobiah enters the picture. And they, they try everything. They, they jeer. They insult. They threaten attack. They plot assassinations. They intimidate Jewish families, the people that are, that are building the wall. They send hate mail internet bullying probably, right? You name it. Like they're doing whatever they can to to redirect these people from making this progress. Now, none of it works because the good hand of God remains on Nehemiah and his crew. But they try hard. They try hard to dishevel them. They try hard to get them frustrated. They try hard to get them offended. And they try so hard to get this forward progress to stop. Now, they didn't make the progress stop, but they did slow it. In fact, the scripture says that um, half of the crew stopped building in order to stand guard. So they had to, like, take turns. Someone had to stand by the gate with the gun and try to make sure that no one comes in or the sword or I don't know what kind of weapon they had in that that time. But they had to stand there and make sure that that no one would attack them. Even at night, they remained battle-ready. They would would work with one hand because they had to make sure that they were uh, prepared to battle um, with the other hand. And this was a costly distraction, Uh, productivity would have more than doubled with focused, rested workers. They probably could have done it in much less time. But in God's economy, he's the builder of the people. And so none of this, none of these resources were wasted. None of this time was wasted. And he invested them in building something far more important and precious than a wall. He was building faith. He was building the faith in them. That the opposition God would use to build faith in the people as they were building the wall. Because a rebuilt city full of faithless people would not please God. A really great dream, a really great business venture, or lucrative profitable profitable year will not please God if you remain faithless. Uh, Perfect kids behaving exactly right all the time with no stains on their shirts or tantrums in the grocery store will not please God if we remain faithless. In fact, I believe a really great vision with, with really great execution, and the right church staff in place will not please God if the people remain faithless. And so God says, 
History has shown that the strong wall is useless unless the Lord watches over the city. It wasn't about that wall at all. It was about the faith that the people had in the God who built the wall. So as Nehemiah and the people worked to rebuild Jerusalem, God said, okay, you're experiencing opposition. I'll use this. I'll work through this. I'll build your faith in me. I'll make sure that this opposition prompts you to put your faith and your trust in me. In fact, in Nehemiah 4.14, it prompts Nehemiah to preach, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He turns all of the opposition into faith in who God is. Remember who is helping us here. Remember who we're working for here. Remember who is building us. Remember who is rebuilding who we are. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. And God gives us faith as a gift, but he tests and he refines and he strengthens it in the fires of difficulty, in the fires of adversity, in the fires of suffering. And we only learn to walk by faith and not by sight when we trust what is not seen more than what is seen. And so, so often we we stand around and say, okay, well, God, I'm not seeing any progress or the progress is slower than I think it's going to be. I'm still dealing with the same sin. I'm still dealing with the same person. I'm still dealing with the same situation. When is this ever going to change? Everything just looks the same. And God, I believe in those moments, is waiting for us to build faith in him. God is building our faith because anything built with faithless people is worthless anyway. And so God is asking us to continue to to just move forward in faith with him. I would go so far as to say, if we weren't experiencing opposition, we would not be making forward progress. If in your life you're not experiencing opposition, then you might want to check your forward progress. Maybe you're not moving anywhere. And that's why everything just feels okay. But if we as a church are going to move somewhere, we're going to face opposition. And in that opposition, we have to begin to put our faith in the builder of the people and not in the builder of the wall. All right, second, God loves impossible odds. God loves impossible odds. Have you ever considered that maybe God allows the odds to be stacked against us so he can reveal more of his glory? He allows the odds to be stacked against us so he can reveal more of his glory. You know, no one thought they could build that wall in 52 days. No surrounding city, no enemy of Jerusalem, no, no, not the king that Nehemiah worked for. When he sent him away, he thought, I'm, like, I'm going to see you in a long time because there's no way you're going to get this done. I, probably not even Nehemiah's own mama, okay? He believed that this could actually happen because it was a broken thing that was broken for so long and burned and needed so much work. The task was impossible. Uh, in Judges 6, I'm reminded of there's a story about Gideon. And if you remember, um, Gideon is instructed to defeat the Midianites. Okay, so God says, go fight these people and beat them. And Gideon says, okay, great, I'm all in. But I have the weakest, like, most good-for-nothing, awkward army in the world. <laughs> uh, we're like, the, you know, the land of misfit toys kind of thing. But here we are. Um, there's no way I'm going to win. And God says, well, you just go and I'll be with you. And Gideon says, uh, okay, so he, he just gets all the people he can find. He gets every dude he can find. The fat ones, the skinny ones, the goofy ones, right? The, the ones with beards, the ones without, without beards, the lumberjacks, whatever he got. And he musters them all up. He says, all right, we're going to go. We're going to attack this army. Uh, God says we should do it. So I have all you people behind me. Let's go do it. And Gideon wakes up in the morning on the day of the attack, and God says to him, you have too many men. And Gideon says, excuse me, (laughs) Um, 
Half of them don't count as men. You know, he says, he doesn't say that. He says, uh, I don't think I heard you right. Like, I, what do you mean? Because I, I kind of think we can't win with these people anyway. And you're telling me there's too many of them. And uh, God says, right, right, right. He says, tell them if they're afraid to go home. And Gideon's like, oh, all right. And so he said, I can imagine he's just like, uh, if you're afraid to go home, what? I don't, you know, like, like I'm doing what God tells me to do. So, so he says, okay, if you're afraid, go home. And 20,000 men leave. 20,000. And God is feeling the burn. Gideon's feeling the burn, not God. Gideon is feeling the burn. And God says to Gideon, all right, good, good. God, like, thanks for being faithful. That's great. Um, you still have too many men. And, and, and Gideon's like, oh, you know, you've got to be kidding me. So God says, all right, take him down to the river. And um, whoever drinks with their hand, they don't get a golden ticket. Like, don't take them with you. But whoever, like, leans down with their mouth and drinks the water, whoever licks it up like a dog, they get to stay. And I'm sure Gideon is thinking, like, this is insane. <laughs> like, what am I doing? And so he goes down to the river, and, I, you know, the people are, and the guy, he's probably like, oh, that big strong one. Like, don't you, don't you, no, you know, like, are you licking your hand? Licking your hand. And so, and so he, 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 he says, okay, you guys, because you drank the water with your hand, you can't stay. And they're probably like, okay, whatever, you know, and they go home. And when it was all said and done, the scripture says, there were 300 men left. 300 men what in the world was God doing? What, what in the world? Why was he eliminating all the manpower that God had before he took them into the valley to fight a huge, strong, equipped army? What was he doing? God loves impossible odds. And God was teaching Gideon about his power. It didn't make sense to Gideon. It wasn't even what Gideon wanted. But it was God saying, Gideon, I'm going to teach you to trust me. I'm going to teach you to trust me. And so he, he goes through all of these steps. You know, too often our prayers revolve around asking God to reduce the odds in our favor. We want, we want things, everything in our favor. God, God would you change, change that so, so it works out for me? Would you, would you help this situation happen? Would, would you make sure that, that things happen this way? But maybe, maybe, maybe God wants to stack the odds against us so we can experience a miracle of divine proportions. Maybe faith is trusting God no matter how impossible the odds are. Maybe today when you look at your future, when you look at your job situation or, or at the current state of your marriage, or, or you look at the future of, of Erie First Assembly, I don't know, maybe you think all you can think is the odds are stacked against us. But God is waiting for us to respond in faith. God is waiting for us to respond in faith because he is wanting to rebuild the people of faith. That is what he wants to do. Most of our problems aren't circumstantial, they're, they're perceptual because we reduce the size of our biggest problem down to, to the size of who God is. When in reality, he's so much bigger than all of those things. In our, our best thought about God on our best day, falls infinitely short of how great God really is. And this is the guy who is calling 100% of the shots about our future. Is that guy. He is the guy that is doing that for us. All right, the third thing that we can learn as the wall is being built is this. So, so we're going to have to, we're going to have, we're going to face opposition if we're moving forward. God loves impossible odds, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when he stacks it up so he can reveal his glory. And third, is God isn't just fixing today, 
He's always building the future. God isn't just fixing today. God is always building the future. So Nehemiah chapter 7, it talks about how he's creating a system. He's creating a government, processes, procedures, so that when all the people come back to the city, there'll be order, there'll be safety, they'll know where to stand in line for the donuts. You know what I mean? Like there will be a very clear sign of where things should be. There'll be a space and a place for worship. There'll be room for success. I remember being funnier. You guys need to like laugh more. All right. So in verse five, Nehemiah says this. So God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by family. What that scripture says is that God gave him a strategy. God is a strategic God. He's a spontaneous God too. He does things randomly, but he also is a strategist, right? He, he gives us a strategy. So God gives Nehemiah a strategy and Nehemiah was obedient to the process. Now there are two enemies to the completion of any project that God has put into your heart. All of your life, at any time of your life, there are two enemies to that. And these are the enemies starting it and finishing it, right? <laughs> is actually starting it, actually starting what God is telling you to do, and then actually seeing it through until it's over. Those are the two enemies of completing any project. And so in verse 7, Nehemiah said his first step was to find the genealogical records. God is very clear that we cannot know the will of God unless we are willing to do the obvious primary thing that God has told us to do. The very worst possible thing you could do when you are seeking what to do next, you don't know what to do next, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, is to do nothing. That's the worst thing. Because it stops forward progress at all. Don't stop doing the things you know you're supposed to do. Do those things until the next thing that God tells you to do is present. I want to read to you Matthew 21, a parable that uh, Jesus tells us in 28 through 31. It says this, But what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second, said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, oh, mm, the first, (laughs) right? They didn't know. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you which I believe was Jesus' subtle way of saying, no, you meet heads, you know, they're both wrong, right? Like, weren't you listening to what I was trying to say? In the parable of the two sons, neither son was commendable. Both categories are inadequate. You cannot say you're gonna do something and not do it, and you cannot say, God, I won't do it. Both of them are inadequate. They both miss the point. And I believe, truthfully, at times of our lives, we are both the sons. We, we say we'll go, we say we'll give, we, we sing big songs, we, we make big promises, God, I'll never be shaken, I'll never be shaken, we won't be shaken, we won't be shaken until tomorrow morning, <laughs> you know, when I wake up and, and things are crazy. And, and, and we have these moments where we never actually get to work, we can talk a really good game, but we just don't follow through. Have you ever got the feeling that God wanted you to do something and you avoided it? Have you ever felt that he has made a clear action step? Maybe it was silly. Maybe it was small. Maybe it, was, it didn't even make sense why you were supposed to do it, but you resisted the guidance. Have you ever done it once or twice? Maybe you said, okay, God, but you didn't long-term keep your commitment. Maybe one day you came to church and God said, I want you to get up and pray every morning. And you said, awesome. And you did it for like four days. And that's really great. But God's like, uh, you know, like I'm in every day, you know, right? right? And, so, and so you have these moments where you don't follow through in your commitments. Jesus' point was this. The only way to know the will of God for life's big decisions is to be willing to be obedient in the little ones. 
The only way to know the big decisions is to be obedient in the little ones. And in this parable, the inner meaning is that God is saying us to this. He says, I'm not going to unfold the complete strategy to you. I, uh, we want that, right? Like life plan, especially some of you who are planners. Um, could I get the next 10 years, please? Just under the door. You know, like I'll, I'll open it up every day. I'll do what you tell me to do. We want to know everything. But the next step is revealed if we take the first step. The next step is revealed if we take the first step. And you know why? Because God is building the people. God is building the people. God is building our faith. And so if, if he just says, just do all these things, that, that doesn't give us faith because we know the outcome. But God is saying, take the next step. And then I will reveal to you the next step. And then the next one. And then the next one. Have I ever failed you, God says? Have I ever left you hanging? Have I ever not told you what to do if you actually just did what I asked you to do? And he says that the basics prepare us for a clarified vision. So when the momentous pressures of life get there, when we get in that really difficult spot, we'll know what to do. Because we've been faithful in the little. Every day, every day. Sometimes the first step that God is asking us to do is to take one of change. All right, say the word change to the person next to you. Just get it out there. Just get it out. So word change, say it out loud. Take a deep breath. All right, don't shudder at that word. But here's the truth. God wants to fix the now, and God wants to build the future. And I believe he has and will continue to give us a strategy at this church. You know, the legacy of Erie First Assembly is is rich and deep. Many of you, many of you have worshiped here for, for the better part of your life. How many of you would say I worship here for the better part of my life, for most of my life? I've, I've been worshiping here. Many of you uh, have, have generations of your family coming to this body. M many of you, your kids grew up in this youth ministry, and now they're pastors and missionaries and teachers all over this nation. They're leading worship at churches right this morning. They're, they're preaching on stages just like this all across this country because they grew up in the youth ministry here at Erie First. Many of you walked your parents down the aisle to help them experience the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Some of you got baptized here. You got married here. You dedicated your children here. Several of the staff, we were sharing our stories at staff retreat recently, several of the staff, including me, that serve right now today were saved filled with the Holy Spirit, and discipled right here. Right here. I learned to pray in the Newbers living room 15, I don't know how many years ago. And, and I pray that same way now because they, they taught me how. We have a long history of reaching people for Christ, but we will not respect that history of changed lives if we stop reaching people. And I am convinced that we will have to change dramatically if we want to reach the next generation. I'm convinced. And, and, and the gospel will never be compromised. Don't, don't get worried about that. The Holy Spirit will always be honored. Uh, the main things will always be the main things. But things have to look different. They're going to have to feel different. The, the process might be different. It might not make sense to you all the time. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes that might mean it's right if it doesn't make sense to you. We will need to begin orienting ourselves to reaching people instead of staying comfortable because we will never get different results if we continue to do the same thing. We never will. I heard a story about a pastor 
once who did a funeral, and uh, the man was a stranger. Uh, the pastor was doing a funeral for the stranger, and he, so he met with the family. He says, okay, tell me something, some things about this guy so that I can, you know, honor him and share with him. And uh, there, there was like an awkward silence, and, and one person spoke up. He said, well, he sure liked ice water. And the pastor kind of muffles his, okay, all right, that's good. Anything else? You know, he's thinking, how am I going to make a, you know, a sermon over ice water? And then another person spoke up a few minutes later, just, just silence, and the woman says, um, that ice water was his favorite. So the, the pastor's like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I don't know about you. I don't want an ice water legacy. I don't want an ice water legacy. God will give us the strategy. I believe that, but we must take the steps. And this morning, I want to ask you this question. Are you willing? Are you willing to wrestle through the change? Are you willing to, to build the future? I'm not asking you to like it. <laughs> Just are you willing? Are you willing to, to reach people so that we can continue the legacy of Erie First into this community and into this city and into this nation? Because we don't want an ice water legacy. We don't want an ice water legacy. We may never see the fruit of what we want, but let's die trying, right? Let, let's die trying. Let, let's get to the throne room of God and say, we did all we could. We changed all we could think of. We tried desperately to reach every single person that we could in this community because we wanted so bad for them to understand the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. That's what we're going to do. And if we, if we fail, okay, then God built his faith in us. But we can't not try because it's not about the wall. It's about God building the faith in his people. All right. I'm coming, I'm coming here to an end. This brings us to Nehemiah 8. The wall is built. God's turning to rebuild his people. And this calls for a response. And I want you to see how the people of Nehemiah 8 responded. Uh, Nehemiah 8.3. Ezra read it out loud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Then Ezra opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen and amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So let me just have you imagine for a minute. In these verses, there's not like a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people, okay? There's 40,000 people that came to worship. They gathered in the busiest part of Jerusalem. Okay, think like Times Square in New York City on New Year's Eve, all right? With like less confetti, okay? Maybe there was confetti, I don't know. But this was one giant worship service. 40,000 people came. And they came not just to see Justin Bieber, okay? But they came to hear the book. Because they had a unified desire to hear God speak. They were hungry for the book. They wanted more than advice. They, they wanted more than good stories. They, they wanted more than great Twitter quotes. They wanted the surest truth. The, the, the solid foundation. The thing that we know will stand forever and ever and ever, whether we fail or succeed or not, that's what they wanted. And like Pastor John prayed, the thing that, that crushes all anxiety, the thing that gives us great direction, the thing that builds people of faith, that's what they were attentive to. And, and as a people of God, we must respond intellectually. We, we must respond with our brains. We must be committed to biblical literacy 
Our, our families must be committed to learning the word. It's not enough just for the pastoral staff to know the scripture. That, that's not enough. We will be rebuilt if we each respond into digging into the word of God with our minds turned on, <laughs> with ourselves saying, God, I don't really get this part. Like, like I'm reading it, but I don't, I don't really understand it. We must be open to what God has to say, even if we don't really like it. <laughs> We must be hungry to hear God's word to break through. We must be, allow God to, let, to set the agenda for the conversation. That's what, that's what we must do. And my prayer for us this morning is that God would help us love the word like the people in the book of Nehemiah, that, that God would help us hunger for his truth in our minds, that we would respond intellectually to him by, by absorbing this, you know, <laughs> Maybe I'll share the story, but I remember in, when I was younger, at times I would sleep with my Bible, just like, God, get it in there. You know, like, I don't know if I can remember it all because I'm just like, God, I just want more of it. I, I don't really understand it. I don't really get it. But my prayer would be for us that we would respond to that. All right, next, the people of Jerusalem responded emotionally. In fact, they were so moved emotionally. Verse 10, Nehemiah had to say, hey, 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 don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, joy always exudes a physical response. Um, people know you're in love when you're, you know, because you got like the birds around your face, you know, and you're walking around, you're like flowing, right? Like you're so joyful, you exude a physical response. People know when the Steelers win, right? Just by the way we respond to the TV, we jump up and down when our team is winning. Um, even when the kids are napping, stop, you know? We, we laugh, we hug, we smile when something wonderful happens. A friend came to church today and I was so excited to run over like this because I'm just so excited. Like joy exudes a physical response. You must have a physical response. And the rebuilt people, it says in the scripture, responded physically in worship to joy. In fact, he says there are two reasons we lift our hands like this. The scripture says we lift our hands. We either lift our hands in victory right? Because we're happy, we're excited, we won the game, we, we, we finished the race, we pooped in the potty, all right? That happens at my house a lot, right? Like, yes, like we did it, like we're so excited. Or we lift our hands and surrender. I can't do this anymore. I, I, I give up, right? I've got nothing more to give. I, I, I lost. It's over. I surrender. I'm done. So we lift our hands in victory, we lift our hands in surrender, and the people worship by lifting their hands. And today, in just a few minutes, we're going to go into worship, and you might lift your hands to proclaim the victory that God has given you. Maybe this morning, you're going to stand in, in front of Jesus and say, God, thank you for the victory that I'm having in my life right now. Thank you for the way that you're answering my prayer. Or you might lift your hands in surrender today and say, God, I can't do it anymore. I can't wrestle through this anxiety anymore. God, I surrender to you in every way that I can. The people responded to God by worshiping. And worship is the proper response to the word of God and to the move of God. And that's why we're going to do that in just a minute. But lastly, we as the people of God must respond willfully, willfully uh, or volitionally. God doesn't want spiritual lip service. I could talk about a burpee all day long, but if I don't do a burpee, I'm not going to burn those calories Burpees are the worst. But what you do in the natural prepares you for the supernatural. Did you hear what I said? What you do in the natural prepares you for the supernatural. So I'm a mother of three little girls. They're eight, three, and 18 months. I've read a bunch of parenting books because it turns out it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> um, but one particular book um, talked about discipline. 
And it talked about emphasizing to your children that they need to obey the directive you tell them the first time. Obey the first time, obey the first time. And if they didn't obey immediately the first time, then you must discipline them and correction should happen. And obviously the author had never met my toddler <laughs> because typically I have to say the directive somewhere around 100 times to get one shoe on the foot. But as I'm attempting this concept, as, as Joel and I are, are on the home front teaching our children to obey the first time, probably in the middle of a giant tantrum, God spoke to me. And I felt him so clearly say, the reason your children need to learn to obey the first time is so that when I ask them to do something, when me, God, asks them to do something, their ears would be turned attentively to my voice. And God said, with an obedient heart, if they learn to obey the first time, then when I tell them to go, they'll go. When I tell them to love, they'll love. When I tell them to change, they'll change. When I tell them to, to move, they'll move. They'll be able to do that. God doesn't just ask his people to do what he asks them to do, like eventually or on, on their time clock or put it on your agenda. You'll get to it. When God asks us to do something, we must do it right away because delayed obedience isn't actual obedience. What in your life has God been asking and asking for you to do? And you just haven't done it. Don't delay in obedience to who God is. All right, the worship team's going to come. And uh, you guys want to take your places. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to end with this. As they get ready. If we respond to God um, intellectually... So we read his word, we soak in his word, we, we, we apply his word. If we respond to God emotionally, we, 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 we have physical expressions of our joy, we, we, um, we cry when we need to, we, we do the, the things emotionally what God is asking to do, and we respond willfully, what will we look like? What, what would our personal life look like? What, what would our family life look like? What would our work life look like? What would a rebuilt church look like? of God look like if we responded intellectually, emotionally, and willfully. You guys can, can come up here and get ready. You could start, actually, if you want. The scripture says that in Jerusalem, when, when God rebuilt the wall and, uh, and then rebuilt the people, the nations, it says, heard of their success, and they were afraid. The nations heard of their success, and they were afraid. The enemies of the Jewish people were afraid of their success. And I believe as we begin to rebuild that the enemy will be afraid of our success. The spiritual enemy, that the spiritual enemy of God will begin to fear our success because the scripture says when the enemy sees we won't give in, he will give up. When the enemy sees that we resist him, he will flee. God will fight for us. And, and I'm convinced that all we need to do to gain momentum is to know God is with us. We're, there doesn't have to be a lot of us. Every single seat doesn't need to be filled. We don't, we don't have to have the coolest story or the most talented people. We, we don't need the biggest budget or the best parking lot. All we need is God with us, right? That's all we need. All we need to gain momentum is to begin to be built up in faith as a people of God. And much like Nehemiah 8, we're going to respond to God's invitation to rebuild us. 
and we're going to respond intellectually and emotionally and willfully. We're going we're gonna to worship, and the proper response to the invitation and the word of God is to worship. And this is what I want you to do is worship today like you never have. If you usually just kind of stand there like this, then sway a little, okay? If you usually do this, then get on your knees. I don't know, but push yourself a little bit. If you never come down here, then come down here. If you always stay up there, always come here, go there. I don't know. Do whatever God's telling you to do. I'm not trying to create this fabricated experience, but what I am asking you to do, like God says, is if we want to be rebuilt in the kingdom of God and rebuild the people of faith, then we must respond to him. So whatever that means to you, whatever God's telling you to do right now, don't delay in your obedience, but just respond to him. Because I'm going to end with this verse. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. And that is where we stand today. Unless the Lord builds this house, the builders will always labor in vain. Let me pray for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much, God, that you have come to rebuild us. God, I thank you that in our brokenness, Lord, wherever that is in our life, in the darkness that we have, in the situations that we feel like we can't get a handle on, God, in the, 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 the future that we cannot see, God, that you have come not to just rebuild today, but God, you have come to rebuild the future. And God, that you love impossible odds, that that doesn't scare you at all. And Lord, that forward progress will attract opposition. And so if we're standing today with opposition, God, that is because we're making progress. And so this morning, God, we lift our hands.